Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 9th, 2022, episode 216, Everywhere Man. Hello everyone, welcome into the corner. I hope you're having a good start to your fall if you're in the U.S. and a great beekeeping season if you find yourself elsewhere. This is, for me, the third or fourth start at recording an episode. I did, in fact, record most of an episode while sitting in the San Francisco airport one afternoon a few weekends ago while waiting to board a plane, but the sound quality was so bad that when I got home, I just couldn't find myself to produce the field recording. It's been some time for me when it comes to sliding behind the microphone, and I'll spend a brief moment filling in the gaps. Every once in a while, my personal life and work dictates my fate. And like the Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere, man. I think this weekend brings to close being somewhere other than home every weekend in some manner for the past months since I've recorded the last one. Since I've last talked to you, I've been in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania on multiple weekends, New York State, Virginia, North Carolina for vacation personal trips, Tennessee for the NASCAR race, and recently returned from a work trip that found me in the city of San Francisco for the Salesforce IT conference. Post all of that, I have unfortunately been dealing with a medical problem that has required considerable focus and attention. I'll talk about that a little later, and when I do, you'll understand what that one's all about. Uh, Fall, for me, tends to be a period where things wind down and we become homebodies around here. And as you might imagine, I'm looking forward to fall settling in, seeing the leaves drop, and getting some of my home and beekeeping chores complete for the year. I think I'll share now that I'm going to consider this a catch-up episode. I'm just going to simply press on and forego the normal structure of the show and talk about whatever comes to top of mind. I've been away so long that I'm pretty sure that I could talk for a couple of hours if, you know, and not run out of things to say. But I promise I won't bludgeon you with dither. I'll state my business and get off the phone, as my father used to say. So, as to what's been going on around here, you know, beekeepers, we always like to talk about the weather. We finally broke the dry and hot weather we had all summer. And with a little rain in late summer and early fall forage looks pretty good around here it's ironic as i think about coming back from san francisco that adjacent to our property where i used to keep our bees that field has been growing unencumbered and there were swaths of goldenrod and native flowers growing in there instead of corn for the first time in a decade the bad news while i was gone the landowners came through and cut it all down so frustrating to have such a resource right there and i have to see if i could figure out how i can get in contact with the person i know who it is who bought the property and ask them to leave it grow to later in the year for them it was probably just a chore that they had on their calendar and came out and did it and i'm sure it's not that big of a deal for them to do it a couple weeks later and leave the bees the forage On the whole, though, I want you to think where my head is on this. It's such an odd imposition to consider. 
you're going to ask some complete stranger to adjust their property maintenance on behalf of the bees. But, you know, by my way of thinking, it does not hurt to educate them on the benefits for pollinators while doing it and see if they might reconsider. If it happens, it happens. No big deal to switch things up and our bees would benefit from it all the better. You'll never know if you don't network. As to that property, the original scuttlebutt was they were going to build a home with all the uncertainty in the home market, interest rates going up and lumber costing more and such. It has sat for a full year with little action. And being curious human beings, also known as being nosy, it would also be nice to learn what they might have in mind for that field. Because likely, if they build a house, they're going to have grass. They're not going to have an open field. If they do not have plans to build anytime soon, it might afford the opportunity to cut a path in the brush and place some bees over there. I guess that's another form of human nature, right? Thinking of all the possibilities where resources are nearby. Not in a grubby kind of way. Opportunistic. <laughs> right? But I have learned that the closer an out yard is, the more convenient it is for maintenance of the bees. Meaning, if there was some reason that I forgot a piece of equipment, it sure would be easier to walk the path over to the garage than get in the truck, drive across town, and do whatever that is. Been there and done that. So it's one of those times that... Uh, I start to ramble through my brain and think about all the things that I've been carrying. Questions that people ask and I don't want to forget to get to them and such. And insulation. This is the time of year that beekeepers make plans. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked this question. I'm sorry that I didn't get to it faster. But it always pops up in rotation about now. And the question is, what do you do or what do you think about recommendations for insulating the hives? The straight answer is, I don't ever want to burden somebody by telling them, you need to insulate your hives. The answer is no, not really. But I'm going to ask you to consider what I'm going to tell you and what I actually do. And then you'll know that I take a different path than that. But the true conventional answer is, you don't need to do it. It's just simply not required. To understand that, you simply have to know that. In practice, there are beekeepers far and wide that don't insulate their hives. And some of them live in the true north of the United States and Canada, and they get by. Now, don't get me wrong. There are places in this fair country where regionally, the answer is yes. If you're in the areas of our nation where the temps go below zero and stay there for extended periods of times, your locals are telling you, yes, you probably need to insulate and or put them in a building in extreme measures and certainly create some sort of wind blocks and such. As for us in the mid-Atlantic region and more close to home here in New Jersey, no, it's not required. The bees will fare fine, but it's contingent upon the right amount of healthy bees and stores. They'll make it to spring with no difficulties. 
if you factor physics and biology, the hives we keep them in provide enough. I didn't say great. They provide enough protection for the colony to overwinter. The math and the engineering has been figured out for quite some time now. And if it actually necessitated a change, then suppliers would sell you something different. Now, coming back to the concepts of insulation, two factors have entered into the headspace of beekeepers who postulate about this. The first perception is a tree, the natural benchmark for nature hosting colonies, provides more insulation than a conventional pine box. And the second one is a little bit on the periphery. I'll conjure up a scenario to warrant the adjustment. Uh, I use Paradise Bee boxes. They're polystyrene hives, which come from Finland. If you look at the climate of Finland, you might guess that it's cold there. <laughs> Colder than New Jersey, and as cold as some of the colder regions in the United States. The beekeepers there in Finland have taken measures to use hives that are made from foam and benefit from the insulative properties because it's a more efficient and simpler way to keep bees in a cold climate. We beekeepers in the U.S. now have the benefit of a market space and ready access to polystyrene hives that inherently have better insulation. So coming back to that moment, I'm going to put a pin in this. I'll talk about conventional wisdom and circumstantial factors that override conventional wisdom. If you are a two hives in the backyard beekeeper and your property affords a good place to put your bees, then perhaps you benefit from natural wind barriers. You are not on a hillside, a damp area. You can get sun to warm up the colonies in the winter. These beekeepers are good to go and likely they don't have to go any extra miles to consider insulation. Me, as I travel around and see beekeeper yards, I rarely have come upon someone set up where I could say, this is perfect. Capital P, perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. Most beekeepers buy their property, and it is what it is. You have to find the most optimal spot to place the apiary, but rarely do we find the ideal scenario. In my case, my bees are in the woods, and we're in a hollow, which tends to hold damp, cool weather. Some beekeepers have no windbreaks. I mean, I could do a run-through of litany of changes and challenges, but the point here is, if you have that circumstance where insulation could benefit your bees and you're willing to make the expense and effort, it helps. That's my practical take in it. As you keep bees, you know. You know if you do or do not fall into the classification, and as such, you can make your plan because beekeeping is local. This is where I think the biology-driven beekeeping is a key thing to understand. Think of biology of the bees and do what is best. Perhaps consider a derivative of this. Your better plan would be to put up a windbreak instead of insulating. 
because of the conditions you have on your property. The beauty of beekeeping is sometimes trial and error is involved. And if you get to spring and you did nothing and it worked out, then you're ahead of the game. If you get to spring next year and things are less than optimal, but you made it through, perhaps you consider more assistance for the bees come next fall. It really is a learning game. And when you figure out what works for you locally, then you can get on with things. But it's really important to observe for your location and learn and then do what's right. That leads me to where I am. Keeping bees for over a decade, I have the knowledge for our spot and what happens with no insulation and what happens with an insulated top and insulated sides. And as you've heard, polystyrene hives, which are insulated by design. I think the bees in my region do not need insulation. I'll reiterate that. If they have a large, healthy cluster and reasonable stores. If they are, however, less than optimal, I think the insulation of the sides with a 2-inch foam insulation on top is a really good plan. It helps them. Kevin moment. If you listen to this show for any appreciable time, you know that I'm a proponent of insulating the inner cover. I have a two inch foam insulation block on all of my hives all year long. It helps top insulation in the winter, keeping any residual heat in and it prevents excessive heat transfer into the top of the hive at summertime. I recommend all beekeepers do this, regardless of what your question is about insulating the sides of the hives for winter and of Kevin moment. When it comes to insulating, meaning affixing some form of insulative material to the outside of your colonies, your hive bodies, I should say, there are usually a lot of ways to go. You could buy pre-made wraps. You could fabricate insulative sides for two, three, and four sides of the hives. I've seen over a dozen tactics when it comes to how to do this from different beekeepers. And one method that I have never taken to, and I hope it falls out of favor, is tar paper. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with it as far as what its intended purpose is per se, but me personally, I don't want to handle it and deal with the material. Now, in the cold, it's a little better, but if you've ever messed around with tar paper, you get tar all over your hands in the warmer time. Sensory-wise, it's really off-putting to me. Also, for the life of me, I could never see myself stapling the stuff to my hives. I see people wrap it around, and then they take staple guns and go, dunk, 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 dunk. No, you're leaving holes all over your woodenware and come spring when it's removed. Assaulting the surface in that manner is just simply bizarre to me. And I, uh, please, for the sake of mankind, find some better way to affix it with tape or something. If you ask me to make a recommendation, I would suggest you cut two inch foam panels in the dimensions of the sides of the Langstroth boxes. And then you cut the front end back to width of the front and the back, plus the insulation on the sides. Did that make sense? 
I know it sounds funny in description. What I mean is the panel is right-sized for the sides and oversized for the front and the back. I would not want the air blowing into the gaps alongside the hives if you follow how that works. Make sure that you test fit everything when you're cutting it so it works in harmony with your insulated foam top if you're using that. And it also accommodates the overhang of your outer cover. There's no standard as to how much an outer cover telescopes down over top of a colony. You could go to your first colony, depending on your equipment, cut it, and then go cut all the other ones to match and come back and find out that they don't fit because some outer covers hang down longer, lower, different dimensions. You know what I mean. <laughs> Ask me how I know. <laughs> I've been there and done that. I have done this and secured the whole thing with a couple rounds of painter's tape. Meaning hold them to the sides and around the hive. On occasion, the tape fails and you find the panels blowing around the yard. So really, the better way to secure them is with straps or a bungee cord. The tip is do it once with painter tape to hold it in place and then use the more secure way to do it. It kind of sucks to pull it apart and to do something and go through the machinations of putting it back together if you're going to do hive manipulations. You can wait till it gets really cold and you're done. You're not going to do anything else and then insulate your hives. They'll be fine in the early lead up to winter. Now we all know that bees give off moisture during exhalation. And one of the things that often comes as a question from beekeepers is when you insulate your hives, do you run into moisture problems? I haven't found it. I know beekeepers who have. For me, I always have an upper entrance in the front of the colony. So one thing to make sure that you do is if you're insulating your colonies, make sure you do not block the gap so that any moisture coming out of the colony. But by my way of thinking... You know, we're not in Seattle where it's damp all the time. We're in New Jersey, and our winters are really dry here. So I, I don't find that we in the Mid-Atlantic region have not heard this from anybody, have significant or even moderate moisture problems when insulating the hives. I have one more Kevin moment on this topic. I kind of think, and this is not conventional, that the biggest benefit of the insulation is not the actual insulation holding in the heat because as we've talked about on the program before the bees generate heat around the envelope of the actual bees but they don't warm the interior cavity i think that the employed barriers relieve wind and airflow that may cause the complications insulating hives by my way of thinking does two things the insulation slows the escape of any residual heat going in and out and it's a barrier to unwanted airflow. That's the reason why I talked about my preference of how to overlap the insulation just a moment ago. Wider on the front and back, tucked in on the sides, end of Kevin moment. Last word on this topic, insulated hives. This is where I come back to the pin from earlier. I've talked about it before, but it bears revisiting. 
Using insulated hives is like skipping to the front of the line. It is a maintenance task, and by my way of thinking, a chore to insulate hives the old-fashioned way. Storing insulation in the off-season is just not much fun either. Insulated hives are insulated by design, and I really do feel like they afford many benefits for overwintering, and they also have less heat swings, cold swings, when temperature changes occur, which is something we have here in New Jersey. I really do feel like they afford many benefits and are worth employing over a wooden hive. And I have a good number of insulated hives in my yard. Actually, if you went outside and took a picture, you'd be surprised that more than half of what you see are insulated because I've used so many six over six polystyrene this year. I do insulate manually. My top bar hive and the Layens hive is insulated by design given how thick the lumber is in its construction. Now I have some conventional Langstroth hives and for these I try to do what was said earlier. I keep good colonies in them. If one of them is moderate and I'm trying to eke it through the winter, I'll insulate it. But for those Langstroth hives, uh, it's how much time does Kevin have to get out there and actually insulate them as to whether they get insulated or not. It's a balancing act. And hopefully now, given what I've shared, you have a good sense of what you factor in and you can make decisions on how to do it. Uh, the last thing, last, last thing. I like the two inch, they're all green, but it just depends. Uh, if you go to a box store, Home Depot, Lowe's, you can find the insulation, stiff insulation, two inch. There's also one inch, don't do that. It becomes flimsy, it breaks, it's not as strong, it warps. I don't know what the deal is with that. You know, it's meant to be affixed to a substrate. The two inch stuff stays solid all the way through. And quite frankly, if you're gonna buy insulation, the upcharge to go to the two inch stuff is so much better. Cut it with a box knife. It's really easy to work with. Make sure you wear some sort of mask so you're not breathing in the fine particles when you're cutting the stuff. From a practicality standpoint, it doesn't require a lot of explanation. I've seen some people cut these on um, table saws. Eh. I don't know if I love that idea because of how much dust and particle goes out. This stuff never degrades. That's the one thing about it. And you have all that dust in your garage and you can sweep it up, but it goes all over the place. I have done it and I won't do it anymore. So use common sense with that, right? You don't want those uh, particles of foam floating around in your workspace that you're gonna breathe in after you take your mask off and go insulate your hives and it's still floating around. So my recommendation is cut it with a box knife or a long knife and don't fling stuff all over. If I didn't say something that you had questions on, write me a note, kevin at bkcorner.org. I went long on that, but you know, as you could tell, thinking about this, I had a lot of ideas that I wanted to share on it. I told you I had stuff in my brain. 
You know, the next thought rattling around in my head is nothing kills a podcast like lack of episodes and long downtime. So sorry for that. Uh, I do have these moments where I take a break and come back. And when I do, I commit to the show. And, you know, typically this is a bi-weekly effort. And given that my last episode was about things learned at EAS, none of that is forgotten. I plan to come back to it. You know, somewhere along the line this summer, I took a moment to look at metrics for the show. I was just curious, you know, as you might be every once in a while, as to how many people look at the or listen to the program. Um, I'm going to share just some stupid stuff about this perspective wise. There was a time when I was the sole proprietor of everything that had to do with the show, meaning I hosted it on my own platform. I knew all my metrics, all the downloads, all of that. And at the time when I was looking at that, there were numbers and, you know, some people are going to call crap on this. So be it. I'll tell you what my numbers are. And there's a lot of factors that go into this, but 100,000 plus downloads a year and over the first number of years there were more than a million listens on the show now when it comes to podcast metrics it's a complicated mess because people subscribe to a show they listen to it once and they never listen to it again but their feed downloads it so typically what you're looking for is did they download it one how many of those are there that tells you the general interest and two did they listen and Different podcast providers tell you the information. Some of them will say they listened all the way through. Some do not. And even the the king of all this stuff, which is Apple's podcast, their analytics are wanton. You really have to pay for some massive service that can aggregate this stuff. And even then, I think a lot of that is like voodoo science. The challenge for a podcaster like myself is that so many platforms have emerged to compete with Apple, which used to be the standard because a lot of people are using Android phones and there's Stitcher and Spotify and, you know, 20 different places that you can subscribe to your podcasts. And there's no way for us as podcasters to understand whether or not you know, how to add all those up. We can't get visibility to them all. You can't possibly know what everybody's doing. Now, I could see how many downloads come through the, the web metrics that we have from the website because you have to physically pull a file from my web server, but even that is dodgy. I was looking at steady downloads. I'm going to click here on analytics from... Um, in the height of the season, there's probably 3,000 to 5,000 people who follow the show steadily. And as they follow the show, they listen to every episode. They go back and listen to others. There's probably upwards to 5,000 to 10,000 people who come in periodically and bounce around from what I can tell. And I would guess that every episode hits three to 5,000, especially in springtime when the surge of new people come in and they're looking for content 
that's just the Apple stuff, which is the big one. But the short answer is, I don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent. This isn't the Joe Rogan show or uh, This American Life or whatever. It's just a beekeeping. And if I think about all the people in the podcast uh, audience for beekeeping shows, most beekeepers are, yeah, sorry to say, older folks. They don't even know what a podcast is. There's a good number of informed people, but probably 10% of the entire target audience gets what a podcast is and would actually listen to one on a routine basis. Maybe not because they, you tell I've done some thought on this. Maybe you just, you know, part of the reason you do or don't listen to podcasts is your life affords the opportunity to block out time. And my podcast being an hour, or whatever. Yeah, so... I guess um, there is one thing that I always say. I, I don't, I don't put commercials or whatever in here. But if you enjoy the show, leaving a comment somewhere on your platform, just saying I enjoy the show, I like the content, it helps me out, I've learned things or whatever, goes a long way in helping people find the program. Which to me is the the key thing that I want is, um, you know, I'm hoping that. The messaging reaches people, it helps people in beekeeping. And when the show gets positive reviews, negative reviews, any reviews, it tends to make it bubble up in the thing. So my promise to you is over the next bi-weekly period and through the rest of the year, I'll behave, I'll be a good boy, I'll be back for episodes pending any medical interference, which again, I'll talk about later in the episode. Uh, yeah, just wanted to... Get that off of my brain. It's been rattling around. Again, maybe I should have called this episode Rattling Around. Yesterday, we were in the field working bees. We went up to Valleycrest for a mentoring meeting. Um, let's just say it was a open invitation. Bob Kloss and I, working with Laura Joyner, were playing around with the bees in the two yards that sit in the Valleycrest Northwest New Jersey mentoring hive location. The club hives, Bob did an experiment there where I kind of knew the answer, but we wanted to show this and demonstrate this to others. This is the time of year where you try to collapse your hives down to the smallest space to accommodate the colony for the size they have. If you have a big colony, that means two deeps, and that's it. Um, hmm. Yeah, I want to share a, a notion on that in a second. But what Bob was doing in one of the things we did yesterday was there's this messaging. You could take a honey super that got partially filled but didn't get built out in the fall and put it over the inner cover. And the philosophy is that the bees getting ready for winter seeing that above the inner cover will take it down into the brood nest. My experience, no. <laughs> Tried that multiple times and have been just completely and utterly disappointed with that as every time I go back, there's still nectar in that box. They just, they don't move it down. They'll leave it up there and consider it excess storage, but they don't move it around once it's settled in there, even if it's wet nectar. I've never seen that. 
Now, sometimes if you get a dearth late in the fall, they'll eat it and consume it and clean it out for you. But more than likely, and as was the case yesterday when we were poking around, there's a little bit of a nectar flow still going on. We've had three to four inches of rain after a significant, what is officially called a drought here in New Jersey. And the plants sucked it up and put some stuff out over the last two, three weeks. We walked around in that field. There's Coreopsis. There's uh, two or three forms of asters. And there are uh, vestiges of two to three forms of goldenrod in the field. Now, mind you, we planted all these flowers. It's a wildflower preserve. And there was plenty there. But even as I walk around our property and look, the plants are still plump and putting things out. And I did notice, as you'll hear in the local hive report, that there's some nectar coming in right now. Well, not only did they not pull it down out of these boxes, they're storing nectar in them over the inner cover. So if someone tells you, put the boxes up, they'll pull it down. That's probably not going to be the case. Now, there are still some people who never harvested their honey and they harvested late in the fall. And what they say is you could take those boxes and put it over your inner cover and have them clean them out. Yeah, that I agree with. Mind you, wet supers might entice them to put honey in, nectar. There's one side effect of doing this, though. If there are stores up there and they start to put stores up there, and then eventually you're going to have to pull this box. You really don't want to leave it on winter. Although some people do. They leave the boxes over the inner cover. I, as you can tell, not sure why you would do that. Um, you want whatever excess nectar they're going to put in that errant box up top, which you were trying to get emptied, down in your colony. So we kept having this conversation with one beekeeper yesterday about extra boxes on top. In this case, bigger is not better. In this case, you want the box container to be the size of the bees. And if you have a small to moderate colony, I wouldn't leave them in a double deep 10 frame. I would move them into an eight frame or I would move them into a five over five nucleus box with insulation. I'd right size the container for the bees. This is something over the last couple of years that I have just come to feel as a tenant. We look through the colonies and they look good. One of the things we noted is they're still building brood, winter bees. Now it's early October and they'll build winter bees all the way through to when you start to get to some of those first frosts and they eventually come back to the cluster. One of the things we noticed in the colonies, two conditions. They're either full, they've got their honey stores set and the honey stores across the top have moved the colony down. Other things that we saw in the club hives were, they're almost there. There's some brood up in the top box, vestiges of winter and late fall or early fall, but it's pockmarked. And the reason being is as the brood is emerging, Every hole where a bee comes out, they put nectar in in anticipation of capping it to make it a capped honey frame. 
I've talked about this dynamic before. Some hives are ahead of the game and some of them are still playing the game where they're getting nectar, filling the top and forcing the queen to go down into the bottom box. Out of the four hives that we opened yesterday, it was a cool day with a light breeze. We didn't want to be up in there too much. We just pulled a couple of the top frames to get a sense of that. And that's what we found. Half the hives were done and half of them were work in progress. In the case of where we stand for this time of year, you can aid them along by feeding them two to one syrup and finishing that job off for them so they don't have to go out and try and scavenge for whatever's left in nectar. And as you'll hear in the local hive report, that's what I intend to do. If you run over to the other apiary, there's two fenced in, um, bare fenced in yards in that valley crest. I have three hives sitting there. Late June, early July, I went over there and did manipulations. These hives started as starter hives, meaning six frame polys, and then they got put into full-size colonies and grown. All three colonies sitting over there are now double deeps, and they all have decent population have grown into mature full-size production colonies. My hope was later in the year that when I put honey boxes on them, meaning supered them, uh, I did three different approaches. On one, I put foundation. Didn't have much faith that they were gonna build out foundation after the nectar flow done, but that field being ripe with all the flowers this summer, I thought maybe they'd find enough and generate enough bees, but they didn't. So I pulled off a box that had nothing but foundation. On the second colony, I gave them a combination of drawn, and capped honey and a frame of foundation hoping that they would build wax and store it they didn't do that when we went in the box yesterday these are just experiments by the way i didn't do this thinking it was going to work i just wanted to know if they were sitting in a field full of wildflowers the optimal situation in the dearth period for August, would they build wax? They don't. <laughs> That's the lesson, the takeaway here. The third box had a combination of a box with foundation and a box with drawn comb. In the box with drawn comb, over the period of August dearth, they filled, I want to say, six frames and capped them. So I pulled that box and harvested it. The second box, they didn't do anything with it. It was just too much space for them. My thought was that perhaps with two boxes and the fall flow there, they would have done better. Now, there's still a nectar flow. And again, I have to remind that in New Jersey, it was super dry and drought, which probably led to the reason why those boxes didn't get full. And now that it rained four inches over the last two weeks, they're starting to fill them all out. But I'm going back to the lesson just a moment ago. I want the honey boxes off so that anything coming in goes into the brood chamber for winter. I can't be greedy trying to grab honey out of those boxes and deplete the colony. So as I pulled it off, yes, there's nectar flow coming in, but those colonies probably could deal with a little more food. If I want to make them quote unquote fat and happy, 
I'm going to go feed all three of those colonies. One of them is full across. They have eight of the ten frames are capped honey in the top and the broods down in the bottom already. Done. Stick a fork in that one. But the other two have the mix where they have some brood going on in the top, but they're moving downstairs. And if I fed them, I would top them off on the top box and I would be able to move the brood down and they would be the proverbial fat and happy for winter. One thing about that field there is it sits kind of on a slope and the wind comes out of the north and flows up the hill and there's always a smidge of a constant breeze, which means it's going to be a little cooler there in the winter, I think. And I would be well served to get them to large colonies with uh, significant stores just to make sure that they were optimally set because those hives aren't insulated. <laughs> how about that? The whole, how does it play out and how do you evaluate it from the first part of this episode comes into factor thinking about what do I do with that? Now, could I go insulate those hives? Yeah, but they're an out yard and I really want to treat them like an out yard and not fuss over them. The last thing about this, and holy cow, we pulled off the box and looked and because, now let me be clear, this is hive number three over there. It's a double deep and the two honey supers. You always see hive beetles in your colonies this time of year, especially late in fall. My sentiment is they always come off of the rotting fruit that's available from all the farms around here and they find their way into your hives. You see a dozen, two dozen, I've seen three dozen. That's an extreme case for us. Nothing like what they have when they really deal with high beetles. Everybody was astonished when I took the lid off and there were three, four, five dozen high beetles running around on the lid. The bees had sequestered them to high beetle jail up there. And then when we went down into the honey supers on the right side, there were 50, 100 hive beetles on the outer frames. Because the box had two deeps and two mediums on it, it had quite a bit of space. And the other thing is it had those, I won't use an expletive, <laughs> brushy mountain frames that have the gaps across the top of the top bar. Worst purchase ever made known to man. And it allows the hive beetles to hide in them all. Tons and tons and tons of hive beetles. One of the beekeepers with us pulled the frame out and it had probably 50 to 60 hive beetles running on one side of the face. And just sat there with a hive tool and squished them all for me. Am I worried that hive beetles are going to overtake this hive? I'm not. And here's why. There were bees in the upper boxes. And there were bees in the lower boxes and the foragers were out. When we took the two boxes off of the top and collapsed them to two deeps, it put more bees down inside. And the fact that we killed all the hive beetles we could kill, probably 120 of them, maybe more. And again, people who have real hive beetle problems are laughing at me. But we killed most of the population, which means to me that the bees concentrated in the bottom boxes will take care of the hive beetle problem and then the other thing is we put swiffer sheets around the corners and if there are hive beetles hopefully it'll collect them all 
it turns out that there were hive beetles in the hive next to it. Now, the odd thing that we were all discussing is 300 yards away on the other side of the field were the apiary hives for the northwest, and there were no hive beetles in those. So wonder what was different about our colonies, my colonies, sitting in that yard that the hive beetles liked them or got into them. The one thing I can think about is the entrances were wide open. And it would serve me to go and put entrance reducers on. It's that time of year anyway, and it's on the to-do list. Because then the bees could defend any hive beetles trying to come in. So one factor that I have to remember for that yard. Now, it's Valley Crest Farms. One of the things they do at Valley Crest Farms is they grow produce. And again, when produce comes to term and it's rotting in the field and then it goes away and stops being a food source, hive beetles are going to look for something and they smell the beehives and they enter them. That's what I've learned about hive beetles and how they come about. Uh, I don't know if I made that up and if that's really true, then why aren't they in the club hives? I don't know the answer to that. None of us kind of had an answer to that riddle. But it was a fascinating thing and I got some good pictures of hive beetles. Never lost a hive to hive beetles so far. I know people who have in our area. It's not out of the plausibility, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. I have to go back and do some maintenance of those hives, put um, entrance reducers, and I actually think I'm going to try and feed them a little bit like I've been talking about. Fun day. Working bees with others, teaching, learning, listening, talking, collaborating. Join a bee club. It's a lot of fun. To that end, I could mention that Tuesday night, Bob Kloss and I are running up to Essex County. We are doing a talk on how to make mead. So if you follow the show, you know that earlier this year I made mead. And I'm not going to talk about how it turned out because... In the recording we're going to play you later between Bob Kloss and I, we discussed the mead sitting right in front of us because we had done an evaluation of that. What I wanted to say just shortly is the presentation that we're going to give explains that you can make mead, and I've talked about this on the show, by mixing honey and water together, or you could follow what I would refer to as a more modern approach, a more progressive approach, at the center of it is TASNA, which in short stands for Staggered Nutrient Additions, and it just follows a different process. That's the body of the talk that Bob and I are going to give. Um, I'm not an expert, neither is Bob, but we wanted to make sure that if we were going to make mead, and the good news is it turned out right, that we didn't make jet fuel and we didn't waste the honey product that we made. And... Right now, it looks like we were on a good trajectory. The stuff that we made turned out really well. We actually sampled some of our wares just to see how they were progressing. They're doing quite fine, thank you. And one of the things that I'm happy to do is while we went through the process, I documented it and made a PowerPoint deck out of it. And we were presenting the process that we followed for others to learn in the journey. And they too can kind of shortcut their understanding and get right to where we are without having to do all the legwork that both Bob and I did to get to where we're at. So I'm looking forward to having that uh, opportunity to present this 
And, you know, always when you present in an audience a beekeeper, somebody's made mead, there'll be somebody to kind of fact check what we're doing and tell us whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm pretty confident we did a good job on this, and I'm looking forward to the feedback from that. So Tuesday night, Essex, if you're up in that area, or remember, come see us. We'll be happy to show you what we've been up to. So, I don't want to go too much longer, and I am going to play the recorded local hive report of Bob and I chatting about what we came upon. But I said something earlier that needs to uh, needs to be said out loud. It had to do with a medical condition for me. Flying back from San Francisco, I had a connecting flight. I flew from San Francisco to Los Angeles and then over to Philadelphia. I noticed when I was in Los Angeles that I had some sort of eye problem. Not really sure what that was about. It's kind of serendipity that I was standing behind a post which blocked the vision of my right eye and I was trying to read the sign for the connecting shuttle bus with my left eye and it was completely blurry and unavailable to me. I was able to get the shuttle bus go over and while waiting for getting onto the plane, called back home and made an emergency call to my local eye doctor because I had no idea what was going on and whether I should fly and so on. Initially, I suspected maybe like a detached retina or something and spoke to the eye doctor. He went through a couple conditions and said to me, based on what he had heard, I was okay to fly, but he scheduled an emergency session with me on Saturday, which was the day after I was coming back. Cut to the chase. They looked at my eye and scanned it and found a problem with the retina and sent me to a retina specialist. In the end, it's been determined that I have something called the hemangioma retina on the bottom of my left eye. This is uh, not too different than those red mole type things you get on your skin. It's a benign cancerous tumor that affects the vessels, the vessel system. And sometimes you see them on the outer surface of people's eyelids. Sometimes they happen in the eye socket. They can happen all over your body. In my case, bad luck for me, it's on the bottom of my left eye. The trauma from the tumor has created some sort of problem with the vessels and they are bleeding and also causing fluid loss, which is impacting another part of the eye that translates what you see to the brain called the macula and results in water being trapped in the layers of the retina at the back of the eye. Net, net, I can't see a thing out of my left eye. I can see, but everything is a complete blur. The description that I have to anybody who I've talked to so far is, it's like trying to look through a couple layers of saran wrap. There's just no focus. Everything's a blur. Needless to say, the last couple weeks since coming back have been doctor visits and checks and retina centers and scans and so on. And now I finally have a course of action. They've given me some drops to put in my eye. The first thing they need to do is take the swelling down. They need to dry the eye up and get rid of the fluid behind the macula. And then from there, they can determine how bad the leak is 
the bleeding, whatever the case is from the trauma, and it go and attack that. The good news for me is, while I can't see a thing if I close my right eye, other than shapes and light and so on, this is not supposed to be a long-term damage thing. It's uh, going to take a while to correct it. I'm supposed to go back Halloween day for my next checkup. And on that checkup, if they've reduced the swelling and, and the fluid, then they'll determine whether they need to go in and zap the tumor with the laser or freeze it or yeah third option they're going to stick a needle in my eye and do it that way do something uh, to the trauma site the retina specialist will's eye one of the best in the world not only the country and i'm so fortunate to have them local to me had said that this injury apparently has been there a while Originally, my doctor, local to my hometown, thought maybe it came from the concussion that I suffered, and it is possible that that did have something to do with it, but the retina specialist indicated to me that she could see where the eye has been leaking, bleeding, and then retracted, and then bled some more and retracted because there's stains around what looks like a trauma site on the bottom of the retina. I have a scan to prove it. It's uh, it's rather interesting to look at because it's very clear there's something going on there. So this is not a woe is me. It's just another bump in the road for life. You know, it gives me pause to think about your eyesight, right? Uh, I was in the apiary the other day wearing a mask thinking, God forbid I get stung or something happened to my right eye. Um, technically, with the condition I have, and in its state, my left eye, I'm legally blind in that eye. Um, nobody's told me that, but reading the definitions of studying what I know, that's what's going on. So, I guess uh, I have to kind of play the waiting game. I'm in hands of the, the best experts for this, and I will trust that they will do whatever is right to get that eye back to normal. They do tell me that there is a path to get back to normal. And they assure me that I am doing no harm by the care that I've chosen. Uh, I should be okay. And that's all that's fit to print on that. It's, it's not a very comforting situation. There is one silver lining to this is that when they looked at the eye, uh, originally these fluid behind the eye macula thing ties back to diabetes type conditions precursor to that not going to be the case according to the will's eye doctor dr meta she informed me there's no signs of anything that looks like there's diabetes going on so i got that going for me yeah and you know one of the reasons that bob came over is he knows i can only see one eye we wanted to make sure that we had uh, eggs and larvae and i wasn't sure if I would have the proper eyesight. It turns out that if you walk out with a frame into the sunshine and get it at the right angle and I can close my eye, I actually thought about wearing a patch because it's strange. But I will say one thing that I've observed is I believe that my right eye has gotten a lot stronger and has compensated for what's going on over there on the left side. And that if I close my eye and I wait for a minute to everything to lock in, my eyesight is a lot better. 
It stands to reason, taking it to beekeeping, to say, a responsible beekeeper wears a veil. I know a beekeeper who lost use of their left eye from being stung on the nerve outside of the eye. And she actually has a droopy eye. And when talking about what happened, she said it was from a bee sting. So wear a veil, folks. Don't, don't be that dumb person that goes out there to scout the bees and, ah, I didn't bring a veil. Every time you go into the yard, bring yourself a veil. It's really important. And in my case, you could be guaranteed that if I'm anywhere near any of the hives, I'll be wearing one. Here's to hoping that sometime, say, Thanksgiving time frame, I can report back to you that everything's back to normal and we're on a good trajectory. I'll just kind of keep you posted on this if you're interested. Um, yeah, just a chapter in life, folks. That's the way it goes. So the episode's been just somewhat ad hoc, uh, whatever's been top of mind. And to follow the suit, I'm not going to do a local hive report. I'm going to play a recording of Bob Kloss and I doing quote unquote, a local hive report. We had worked bees all day on Friday for a couple hours. And afterwards we sat down to have a single beer and just chat over things. And what you're going to hear is the two of us to take you out of the episode, talking about what we saw, comparing notes back and forth. Um, and you know, a couple other topics, including talking about the mead that we had sitting on the table. Um, Maybe a couple other things. I don't actually remember what's in the recording, but should be interesting nonetheless. So here you go. Without any further introduction, go ahead and listen to what we had to say. Yeah, if you could only bottle it. <laughs> right? Yeah. All right, Mr. Kloss, you see me with this recorder? Oh, God. Yeah. <clears throat> Low treatment method. I made it up, so it doesn't sound like anybody else's anything. Uh, you know we didn't do any mic checks. Oh, yeah. Well, look, we, we we did all that we could today to go through... That's true. How many hives? 13, 14, 15, 16. We went through 16 hives. I think we did okay. It's a day's work. Plus, we did manipulations and other stuff. So let's talk about... What we saw on the whole. Okay. We could say that two of the colonies were mediocre. Yeah. And you and I were discussing as we went through all the colonies, why do we feel like all the colonies were strong and well-suited and whatever? And mm -hmm. the common equation between them all is? We were looking for enough stores, i.e. honey. Yeah. And enough bees good population of winter bees yeah. and we looked for a functioning queen so those were our three criteria um, and most hives had a fun well they all had a functioning queen um, right. every single hive was queen yeah. right most of them had enough stores and a, I would say a, a good amount of bees full be full bees there yeah. was a couple that the bees were maybe I would say medium I wouldn't call them strong. I'd say they were, you know, medium strong. But uh, the one hive on the metal stand was average. Yeah. The one on pad number four was substandard. Yep. So that was the one. That's the only one. hive that wouldn't have met muster. Right. And what we discussed with that one when we saw it, this to give you an idea of how weak it really was. You asked me, what are we going to do with that hive? 
and I said, you have to combine it. There's no way that it's going to make it, and you can't feed it enough. There's just nothing you can do to save it. You've got to combine this hive. Yeah, so then right. you came up with the idea. Well, we have a person who has a queen right or queen less hive, and she put a queen in it, and the queen didn't take, and she called just last week saying, what do I do about this? I've called around and I can't get a queen. Problem solved. I'm just yeah. going to give her the colony. It's a dink. But if it makes it through to winter and we can requeen the thing in the spring, mission accomplished. Her hive's not going to make it anyway because it's got no queen. So we'll take it to her tomorrow. So only uh, the one thing to worry about is that hopefully she doesn't have laying workers. Right, yet, right. Because we don't know how long she's been queenless. Yeah. Although having said that, I had, a, again, a couple of the, uh, the nukes and the queen castle that I checked for queens and didn't find any. Um, they have been queenless for probably close to a month, and I didn't see any evidence of laying workers. I wonder if laying workers, if, if they take, hmm, they don't develop as quickly in the fall. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a reason in the spring. Right. But because they want to keep it going. But I had those hives, both of them had no queen in it. Oh, although they did have queen cells. So there could have been a virgin that emerged uh, yeah, okay. and didn't come back. So I, I take that back. But they, but the one we, that we combined, the ones I brought over today, had no lay, evidence of laying workers in them. So just had a few bees on them and some honey. So from a local hive report, check everything looks good I, we saw no signs of varroa mite infestation it's not to say there aren't varroa mite problems but you know there were a couple hives that had spotty brood and you and i discussed that it's not spotty brood because of disease it's spotty brood because every time the queen wait i'm gonna put a pin in this we noticed we didn't talk about this that in several of the boxes, there's capped brood up top. Yep. And new brood being built in the bob. We universally went through all the hives to make sure that there was something going on with new brood. Most of the time when we found eggs and larvae, it was in the bottom box. That's right. And Absolutely. so this follows that fall dynamic of if they're bringing enough forage, they're going to lay that forage in the area up in the top where the queen was laying mm -hmm. and stop her from laying, which is why every time something emerged, we saw filled, honey in it. it with this nectar. is what you want to see in the fall, right? Yeah, they were driving the her down. The natural process is driving her down. Yeah. So seeing spotty patterns, <clears throat> I don't think is a, a problem. Plus, yeah. you know, the queen in the summertime, especially the dirt that we had, she lays haphazard anyway. She's yeah. not laying like she is in the spring. Just one other comment I'll make that we, we noticed is uh, there could have been a pretty decent fall flow this year. It didn't seem like it at first, right? In the early fall, you, you looked around yeah. and you went, uh-oh, you know, because we had such a dry winter, right. or winter, summer, and then we thought, well, are we going to get any fall flow at all? And we thought, maybe not. But I think there's a decent flow. With, as, as you just mentioned, the goldenrod is just blooming now in this yeah. area. Just blooming, blooming now, yeah. you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of, I told you I was up at Valley Crest Farm. There's a lot of wildflowers that are still blooming at this time of year. I saw some asters up there. So, uh. So the fact is there's probably six to, six to, to 
to eight of the hives that we looked at today that are ready to go for winter. They don't need to be fed. Not, not by any of my doing. <laughs> Nature took care of it, right? And I wonder, you and I were talking about uh, goldenrod. Yeah. But also, I've not seen massive amounts of um, lanternflies this year. Have you? Mm. I have not. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of discussion that our fall flow somewhat is augmented lately by the lanternfly. Yeah. But they're not all over the place here in my yard like they have been in the past. They're not in my home yard. They're not in the deer path hives, which is maybe about a mile away. Yeah. And they're not at Valley Crest, which is, say, maybe five miles away. There's a few at Valley Crest, but I wouldn't say there's a lot. To tell you how bad the lantern flies can get, so I was uh, up talking to Butch, and Butch lives up near Merle Creek mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Reservoir. You've is. been there, right? Yeah. And he was saying that the lanternflies are so bad there that when you stand on the shore, 40 feet out, it's covered. The water is covered with lanternflies. I said, come on. He said, no, I'm telling you, Bob. You can ask my neighbor. We were standing there and for 40 feet. Well, you remember two years ago, they were flying. It looked like fireworks over every inch of the sky. There was always a lanternfly flying from tree to tree here in my yard. Now they're not here. I don't know if they migrated through and they're gone. No, what I've heard from uh, a couple of people, I don't know if it's true or not, so don't repeat this, uh, but it seems like a predator has found them. Oh, really? Yeah. Something has found them that's feeding off of them that didn't recognize them at first, but happened to take a couple and said, oh, yeah, these are okay. So I don't know whether it's a bird or what, but I... uh, I just hope that's the case. I don't yeah. know that it is, but I hope it is. Because that would be a, a cure, if you will. It'll come into balance. So one of the things we did today was take the flow hive off of the polystyrene hive. And darn if we didn't find it, it had three frames <laughs> on <laughs> So I have to figure out how to harvest them. Because I'm not putting that flow hive back on. I know, what you, I know exactly what you're going to do. What are we going to do? You're going to... Tell Sharon about it, and she's going to do it yeah. while you're at well, work. Well, you can turn the turn the crank and let the honey flow out. It doesn't have to be sitting out in the yard. That's, the that's problem true. is it needs to be warm enough yeah, that the honey flows. will flow. So I have to bring it in the house. Mm-hmm. But that was a surprise to find that much honey in that thing. Yeah. <clears throat> I I think you know, just to say this for everybody, one of the things we did was, with one exception, the scale hive. If it's a 10 frame deep, it's two 10 frames and that's it. Mm-hmm. We had one with honey super on, we took the honey super off. Right. We're consolidating them down. And, and I don't want a lot of extra boxes, right? And even the eight frame colony, double eight frame, yeah. no box on the top. That's still 16 frames they'll get through. People can overwinter five frame nukes and singles then these boxes can get through with smaller space. The key is, I don't think any of the boxes were, like the one on the end, that the Russian hive, mm-hmm. that we left the honey super on, it had a lot of bees in it. Yes. It'll do okay with that extra box on top. It, it That's the reason it had an extra box on top, is because mm-hmm. it had so many bees in it. So public service announcement collapse your boxes down they don't need a ton of space to go through winter in fact smaller is actually better small to the size of the colony so but but i think 
this first year experiment of knock on wood, no treating, didn't turn out to be a catastrophe here in the fall. We'll find out in the spring. Yeah, well, but you, you didn't have. I didn't see any parasitic. No, no evidence. No absconding. That, no parasitic mite syndrome. No. No. No sign of K wing or or uh, deformed wing. All the bees look healthy today. I have to say, no sign of collapse. Right? You know, the big the big worry when you don't treat is that your hives are going to collapse and they're somehow going to infect, you know, other hives that are around them. But if your hives don't collapse, that's uh, that's a huge plus. So there was one colony that seemed to have a dearth in pollen, and yeah. you and I let's talk about that. We're talking about whether or not. We would feed pollen to that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the colonies, I see pollen still coming in. And when we look through the frames, you could see bees walking around with pollen in the pollen basket. Yeah. Yep. Oh, one of the things we saw today was a marked worker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, look at that, that marker. Well, I recognized her right away because yeah, I've seen a I've lot seen of I've seen it three or four times. That's from uh, bees that are working uh, jewelweed. Jewelweed, which we have in the yard. Yeah, yeah and they get this uh, white to tannish white uh, stripe on their back as they enter the flower. And they almost look like a painted queen, Yeah, but they, they're a worker. That's what it looked I like. I tried to take a picture of one today, but it got away from me. Yeah. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, I so, lo- so pollen-wise, that one yeah. colony looked like, I'm pretty sure I put it in my notes, it was the 10-frame poly. It needs pollen. Now, we didn't go through all the hives, like frame by frame by frame by frame. Oh, another comment I would make is I think of of all the hives up there, because you have all different configurations and different yeah. kinds of hives. The six over six polynukes were all, almost all, in really good right. shape. Strong. Except for the one. Again, enough bees to fill that box, 12 frames, yeah. enough honey to get them through the winter. And they're in an insulated box, so they look really good. I, I think that's a really, almost an optimal size for them. Yeah, I'll tell you, I really like those boxes. And uh, uh, we went through the A-frame boxes. What did you think of them? There's two of them up there in New York. Yeah. You, you know me, lighter is always better. I wish yeah. I had more A-frames because I'm, I'm getting to the point where lifting is really getting to be harder and harder for me. Yeah, but the polystyrene ones were actually nine frames and they're full that's right and they were a little heavy you and i lifted that one box (laughs) it was full from wall to wall floor to ceiling of honey and it was it was pretty darn heavy how about these yellow jackets all over the place right now well there's nothing for them to eat we haven't seen them in a couple years like this yep as we're sitting here there's ones flying around the table they like they like bob apparently he smells good or something yeah So so just one, a general observation, too, about the year. So this was the first year in probably five or six or maybe even more that we had a a substantial drought in the summer. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So like after June, it didn't rain for 12 weeks, something like that, 10, 12 weeks. And everything got really, really dry. So what would you think if when that happens, you'd go, well, you know, probably not going to be a real good honey year. Right. It didn't seem to make a difference. I I think the honey yield from people that I've talked to and my own experience, and Mm -hmm. I know your experience, we've got a decent amount of honey considering. But you know what? Maybe it's because the drought came during the dearth, right? I mean, most of the drought was was during the dearth. So that's probably what happened. It didn't really matter. Well, the other thing, too, is that the goldenrod 
we know this, right? Goldenrod comes mm -hmm. out and looks great out in the field or whatever. Yeah. But it's not till later in its actual lifespan that it's a functioning plant. And mm -hmm. guess what we got? Four inches of water in the last two weeks. Yeah, that was great. So it might be that this last push extended the plant life and actually plumped it up and made it better. Yeah. Because we saw new nectar coming in and in quite a few of the colonies. Right, they're they're pulling nectar right now. Even well, yeah, we did. This is pretty late. I mean, it's it's yeah. October. Yeah, we don't usually usually you see that start in August, runs through September, and it really dries up early October. The fact that we're seeing it now, maybe it was waiting for rain, right? Could have been to your point. Yeah, I mean, look at that goldenrod right there. It's just popping now. It's yeah, at, it looks at beautiful. Peak. It's at peak. It is. Yeah. In fact, I see a bee on it. Seeing a bee which is pretty good for me right now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, uh, let's talk about one other thing while we're sitting here. You brought me some mead. Yes. I brought my mead out. Let's do an update on that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start with my mead. Still looks cloudy. Also give some background. You invited me over to make mead. Right in January. And we both made mead and yours is crystal clear in the bottle sitting over here. You've already racked it. And mine's sitting in the carboy still foggy looking. Um, and when we looked at it, it's got a lot of leaves on the bottom, which yeah. is funny because it's been racked twice. So I don't know what's going on. And I racked mine after yours. So it's not like I racked yeah. it too early. Too early. By the way, racking means you draw the clear liquid off of the yeast so that it does not uh, pick up the yeast flavors. So there's two jars sitting in front of you, peanut butter jars. One of them has the word Lee's on it, and the other one has the word natural. We'll start with the Lee's one. When I finished racking mine off, there was a little bit left at the bottom, of the, as there always is. I didn't want to waste it. Mm -hmm. I don't mind the taste of yeast. So I pulled it off and I put it in this jar. And I've racked it twice, meaning cleared it twice. And as I hold this up, and it came out of the same thing that's over there in the carboy, it's crystal clear. But yeah. the carboy, as you see, is, is still not cleared out. We tasted this, and I have to say for mead, I've tasted a bunch of just plain old honey and water mead. Mm -hmm. It tastes pretty good. Yes, it has a little bit of yeasty background yep. to it. But on, on the whole, it's actually very flavorful and tastes good. Yeah. Now, next to it is the one that says natural. When you and I mix the honey and the water, and then we put it into the carboy and added Lalaman BA11 or whatever yeasts we wanted, one of them I just said, you know, let's do this experiment. And I put a peanut butter jar full, and I didn't put anything in it. We drank some of this mead today. Yeah. What did you say it had? So it has effervescence. To yeah. It. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at it right now, and you can see these teeny tiny little bubbles coming from the bottom and going up. It tasted almost like you said it tasted like champagne. It has a little bit of a champagne-esque flavor to it. It's so good. It was delicious. No yeasty anything. So Just... So much for the, you know, the wild yeast is so, <laughs> maybe so better. So riddle me this, right? Just honey and water made a perfect, incredible drinkable thing. Mm -hmm. Honey, water, and champagne yeast or whatever it is that the brand that I got mm -hmm. made a musty, 
Now, we drank some of that just to taste it. It tastes good. Yeah. It doesn't taste yeasty. It's going to be good, but it needs to clear. Yeah. And it's been seven months, eight months. Yeah. I think the other comment that I made was... I, Yours looks like my, mine champagne. Looks, mine looks beautiful. Yours looks like a clear wine. But I don't think it tastes, you know... It's plain. It tastes very plain. I expected uh, it to have maybe a little more sweetness or a little, I don't know, flowery taste. And maybe maybe it will mellow with a couple more months in the bottle. But uh, what it said to me was, now I know why You made people... two batches, right? You did like I did. We yeah. used the two different yeasts. Oh, that's right. One of them was a plain yeast, yep. and the other one was supposed to have more bouquet to it. Uh -huh. Do you know which one? I don't. Do you remember? I could look, because I labeled mine. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to look at that. And see. And see if this was the plain one. Right, because one of them was just supposed to be honey and water flavor, and the other mm -hmm. one was supposed to give a little fruitiness and blah, blah, blah. I guess the fact that it doesn't taste like uh, white lightning or like alcohol is, is a plus, right? I mean, we made a drinkable mead. What it says to me is, this is why people put herbs in it or they put yeah, spices right. in it or they put well so i brought it. you some cherry bounce oh. <laughs> it's cherries yeah right at the peak of the season mixed with vodka and a little bit of sugar syrup and we tasted a shot of that just i wanted to have a it is so good just delicious so we were talking about yeah regular meat it's kind of plain not very dynamic people put cherries in their meat so that they could have a cherry meat mm-hmm but what did I say to you? If you could make a plain mead and have it drinkable, not jet fuel, then when you add the cherries to it, you'll have an exceptional product. So yeah. even though you're you're not overly enthralled with just plain mead, it's still very drinkable and tastes good. But we're used to drinking the stuff that Sergio gives us, yeah. which is astonishingly good. Yep. And I think for a first effort, it's pretty good. Even so, my cloudy mead sitting there in the thing we're looking at so tell me what you brought me oh so the cloudiness i used to make wine i told you that way back when i used to drink a lot more wine so i made a lot more wine but anyway so i have a lot of different wine supplies and um i have what's called fining agents f-i-n fining agents and what they do is you mix them up uh the ones i brought over one is called sparkaloid which is a gelatin like material and you, you cook it up and then you put it into the uh, cloudy mead. And within three days to a week, all of the cloudiness drops out to the bottom. And I also brought another one that's called bentonite. And bentonite is a type of clay. This is food grade bentonite. And it does the same thing. You mix it up with a little bit of water and you put it in there and three to five days later, it's clear. And everything that was in uh, suspended in the liquid before is now at the bottom in the lees so we can try that and uh well what i said to you is i have two gallon jugs well, of right. mead yeah, that's right you have two. i'm going to do one and see if it works and then if it doesn't i'll or if it does i'll do the other so flocculate isn't that the word for the yeah. stuff floating around there so what um <coughs> sorry i've only used this once on wine yeah and the only downside that I've heard, and I found this when I used it too, takes a little bit of the body away from the wine. Now, me doesn't have a whole lot of body to begin with, so is it really gonna make a difference? I don't know, but we'll find out. 
you know, does using these flocculate, flocculating <laughs> agents, yeah, you know, word change, of the day. does it change the flavor of your, uh, of your mead? So you mix it with water and you put it in there. Yep. What happens to the extra water? Just mixes into your yeah, meat. Yeah, just dilutes your and meat. And do you a stir bit. it in there? Yeah, you stir I'll it. I'll obviously in. look up the directions, but yeah, you stir it in. Yep. You basically dissolve it in a small amount of water. The sparkloid you heat up. The bentonite you use cold, and you just stir it around till it's all dissolved, and then you put it in, and then you stir. You agitate your uh, your cloudy mead. Okay. The sparkolate's made out of seaweed. Seaweed, yeah. It's a, it's a gelatin. I've used it before, and it's like a, when when the leaves fall to the bottom, yeah. they're pretty they're pretty solid. You know, you don't have to worry about sucking them up when you're trying to decant the uh, okay the clear liquid off. So, last dynamic of this mead thing, I have marbles in the back of, on the bottom. Yeah, and that's the only thing you and I did differently. Yours was clear, mine was not. And I have no idea why the marbles would make any difference, especially since I sanitized the marbles before I put them in, and they're made of glass, so it's not like you can't get them clean. Yeah. I forgot that you we had used two different kinds of yeast. Yeah. Because one of the things is that there's a lot of leaves in this bottle with the marbles in the bottom. Yeah, I wonder and why. You, you've racked it twice, yeah. so we it should be, you know, it's a law of diminishing returns. Every time you rack it, the leaves at the bottom become less and less. But th this almost looks like the first drop of the yeast. So the only difference was I used a different honey than you. I used mine, you used yours. Mm -hmm. Maybe my honey had more yeasts in it somehow. Yeah, who knows? That's the only real delta, that and the marbles. But the marbles were cleaned in sanitizing solution. So, okay, last topic for the conversation. What honey. you got there? So, <laughs> I had a, uh, a pretty good year with honey. I, um, I harvested close to 500 pounds, and I gave uh, three five-gallon buckets away. No, so three supers away. Yeah. Medium supers. So it was a good year for me. Um, last year, the honey that I got from my home yard was a little on the darker side, which is, you know, the, the type I like. I like the darker honeys. Um, this year, my home yard, it was pretty much, uh, I would say, amber, you know, right in the middle. Good, tasted good, but it wasn't the uh, darker honey like that I like. But I harvested three supers from uh, Deer Path Park, the club has some hives up there, mm -hmm. so I had two eight-frame hives that I harvested, you know, three supers from. And the honey is as dark as buckwheat, and that's that's a fine. But what was surprising? It's the is, same color as pumpernickel bread. Yeah, it it and it's dark, but what surprised me was when I took the refractometer to check the moisture level. Guess what it was? I told you this, fifteen point five. Yeah, that's pretty low. Anybody ever seen honey that low? I've I, the lowest I've ever seen. On the seen. internet, I've heard people say it, but never uh, in person. I've seen 16.5. I've never seen 15.5, and you can see the difference. So we tasted it today, right? Yeah. And the mouth feel is completely different. It's like fudge. It tastes like you're eating something. Yeah, it's more it's, more solid. It's like uh, hot fudge. Yeah, like almost. Hot, yeah, that that's a good. As a hot fudge. So we were trying to figure. But it's out, a little more. 
gelatin. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. But there's definitely when you put it in your mouth and you go, boy, this doesn't taste like any, you know, this isn't. We took like, like any five honey. minutes to figure out the flavor and I figured it out, I, I think. I think you got it too because um, it doesn't taste bad. So, you know, my first it's thought different. was, oh crap, light lantern fly, you know, yeah. honeydew honey. Um, but it doesn't have a bad taste. Um, Lanternfly is known to have an okay taste and an awful finish, yeah, apparently. A little right? smoky, they say. Some people like that. Um, but there's no off flavor to this, although it really doesn't taste very sweet. That was the first comment we made, you know? It doesn't taste sweet like other honeys. Right. So uh, then you nailed it. You, you finally nailed it. You were spinning around. It tastes like this. It tastes like that. So we're... Tell them what you thought it was. It's date. date. It tastes just like eating dates. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It has that, you know, sometimes dates are really sweet, and sometimes they have that uh, not off-putting but pasty kind of date flavor to them, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's somewhere in the middle of sweet to pasty, but in a pleasant way. Not, in, but it, but it has a very date, and then it finishes with plum. Mm -hmm. It has a very plum not a tart plum a sweet plum flavor so there's no sweetness to it you know if you eat a date or, or a plum you get those how do you even describe it flat flavors that are pleasant but yeah. but they're not like eating a peach where you get so much sugar yeah so so yeah really strange stuff so uh i left some with you you can experiment with yeah, I'm some I'm going to try and get some to Sharon. Get Sharon, so, see what Pete Bob, thinks. all I have to say is, how to blast working bees with you today. Thanks fun. for coming over. I don't know if you were bored. <laughs> I took the day off just because of what's been going on lately. I have not been in the bees. And uh, you and I talked about working together. We're, we're so efficient. Yeah, we've done it so many times. You we know. started at 1, we were done at 3.30, and we did... 16, 19 maybe, I don't know. 16 hives, mm -hmm. yeah. So, appreciate the help, and I'll see you tomorrow yeah. at the mentoring session. had a ball. Session. Yep, I, hopefully it's not too windy, because it's going to be a little cool. Yeah. But uh, if we hit 60 degrees, we'll be okay. I think we'll be all right. Yep. All right. All right, thanks for chatting with me. Yep, bye. Just a couple closing comments to end the episode. Always fun to hang around with Bob been so busy lately i hadn't talked to him in about two to three weeks or something like that it turns out uh, we did that session then we went to the mentoring yards and we're presenting together on tuesday night and next saturday is the state meeting at the fellowship deaconry in basking ridge and we're going to head up to that so uh looking forward to some more beekeeping stuff and going to listen to the notes that I took after each colony we assessed. I recorded some notes and gave myself a to-do list. Going to feed a couple hives just to make sure that they're all fat and happy. And during the course of doing that, if I can get a couple warm days and there looks to be some 70 degree days coming up in our future, uh, I want to see if I can get in and do some mite checks just to see uh, for some record keeping basically because that was what I had hoped to try and commit to doing. But, you know, the last word I'll say about what you just listened to is, I, I don't know why or how or if it's luck or this is the plan unfolding, but there did not appear to be, knock on wood, any 
signs of Varroa problems this year. And so hopefully these colonies will overwinter. The bad news is if I get all these colonies through, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these bees come springtime, but that's a problem I'll deal with if and when I face it. I think that's a good point to uh, call it a day and say to you, thanks for listening. Uh, please like, subscribe, whatever to the podcast. Um, if you can, leave a comment. And I look forward to coming back to the notes from EAS in the next couple episodes and getting some of that stuff underway. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be well, take care, and talk to you soon in the next episode of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.